From LibertyCast Studios and the Defenders of Capitalism Project, here's another capital idea from your host, Mike Williams. Mike Williams here, defender and champion of laissez-faire capitalism. This is Michael Williams with the Defenders of Capitalism Project, and I'm joined by a special guest here. I'm speaking to the audience from Norway at the Montpelier Society Conferences, and I have a special guest, Dr. Eamon Butler. Thank you for joining me. Yes, Dr. Butler is a renowned economist, and he's the co-founder and director of the Adam Smith Institute in London. That's correct. Also have, you've had a long history with the Montpelier Society. Uh, yes, I think I probably started coming to meetings in the mid-1970s. I think probably 74 was my, my first one. Um, and uh, uh, I, I thought it important to go. I mean, I was very young at the time, but at the same time, Montpelier Society is where everybody went. Uh, all of the, the great intellectuals, free market intellectuals, um, people who believed in the free society, they were all there. So it was very important uh, to go, even though it was very expensive to travel to d- different places and, and the conference itself was rather expensive. Uh, but it was worth saving up in order just to be able to mingle with all of these people like Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek and, and just uh, talk to them and, and get their ideas. And it was really uplifting. Absolutely. That, that was my uh, motivation myself to just become part of this organization. In fact, I, I think I have a little bit of a uh, thank you owed to you. You probably helped me uh, claw my way into the program here, and I've enjoyed it ever since. I've been a member for a number of years and been coming uh, actively for the last several conferences. And this is the 75th anniversary meeting. Um, now, I know we can't go into a lot of details about what the agenda is. On the, uh, Mont Pelerin is a, a, a very dynamic, civil, but, but uh, dynamic, debate group in a sense we discuss ideas um, of the day and uh, of, of a historical nature and both of a current nature uh, sometimes contentious um, but for the audience tell, tell a little bit more about how the how the organization got started uh, well it got started in 1947 because uh, Friedrich Hayek who many many years later went on to win Nobel Prize in economics um, he was very concerned about um, uh, the, the status of liberalism um, after the, the Second World War, that, that you'd had to, totalitarian governments in Europe, uh, and then you'd had the Second World War. And then after the, the uh, war, then um, people, uh, even in, in liberal-minded United Kingdom, were talking about, oh, well, uh, we, we won the war, let's win, win the peace. We need to have more government uh, concentration of, of uh, industry and things like that. Uh, yeah, that's what got us through the war, the government taking control of everything, and that's what we should do now. Um, so he was concerned about that, and he was concerned about uh, Germany uh, in particular, which uh, was uh, still under occupation of the Allied powers. Um, and again, it, it it's like a colonial administration, a you know, very rigid um, uh, organization of uh, everybody's lives. And they were looking at uh, you know, you know, serious collapse of, uh, of the economy and uh, would it ever revive? Could it ever revive? So um, Hayek got together um, 20 or 30 uh, of the leading thinkers, uh, you know, free market, pro-freedom, pro-free society thinkers, and he got them together in Switzerland. Um, and uh, they came up with some interesting ideas, and they resolved to meet again and again and again 
and that's what became the Mont Pelerin Society. You know, it's interesting because I've I've talked to a number of members over the years who thought, "Hey, well, we won." You know, we you know, not not back then, but but certainly you know in the in the '80s and '90s with Reagan and Thatcher and the 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 uh, sort of swing toward freedom and, and liberalism. First of all, I want to ask you for our, our audience in America. You know, there's always the confusion about liberalism. In fact, the the conference has this. Uh, you know, this theme of, you know, a new, you know, toward, toward the preservation of a liberal world order. And a lot of the people in the U.S. who are more, you know, think at least they're more freedom-oriented, um, sometimes get confused by that term liberalism. Uh, yes, absolutely. And I use it in the European sense. Uh, a liberal is somebody who uh, fundamentally believes in the freedom of individuals and believes that that is uh, uh, the priority. And that while we might occasionally need to get to, together and governments need to do things, um, that should be a second best uh, solution. That, that normally most individuals can look after themselves and, they, and you should leave them free to do that. So um, that is the liberal philosophy in, in the European sense. In America, of course, the word has simply been annexed to mean left wing. <laughs> so it's, it is very confusing, I have to say. But uh, when I talk about a liberal, I mean somebody who's in favor of liberty. Someone who's in favor of liberty, individual rights, having the proper role of government, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the government does have a role. Uh, I mean, the Montpellier Society is a, a mixture of uh, uh, people with different views. There are more conservative people. There are much more libertarian people. Uh, but Hayek himself, I think you could describe him as a classical liberal or, or neoliberal, as they called themselves at the time, um, but a classical liberal who believes that, yes, there is a role for the state, specifically um, in administering justice uh, and, and defence, uh, things like that, or at least making sure these things are done, not necessarily doing it themselves, so the state does have a role, but apart from, but, but the role is, if you like, setting the, um, setting the, setting the rules under which the, the game, if you like, can proceed. It, it's, it's, the state is like a, a fire basket that contains the fire, but it's the fire that's the interesting thing, and that's what keeps you warm, that's what uh, produces your energy, and that's what, uh, what, what gives you progress. Absolutely. So I, I didn't do a proper introduction of you. I mean, I, 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 you know, you, I said you've been involved in the Montpellier Society. You've been an officer. You've been more than involved in the Montpellier Society. And you're, you're, you're a prolific author. You've written a number of books on, obviously, the topic of, of uh, economics and markets. And, and you've, talked, you've written about uh, thinkers like von Mises and Hayek and Ayn Rand. Um, uh, how did you become so interested in these ideas at an early age? And you, you've also taught in the U.S. You've taught taught here or taught in uh, Europe. Uh, how did you become early on so interested in the ideas of liberty? Well, I was very fortunate that I went to the University of St Andrews in Scotland and uh, the uh, university there, there was a very active, uh, it called itself the Conservative Association, mean, meaning uh, Conservative Party. Uh, but in fact, it was it was really pretty libertarian, and uh, I think people had read Friedman and Hayek, and they were interested in these uh, uh, liberal ideas. And it was a real um, hothouse, and, and and there was you know so many people, and you could debate all of these things, and it was a, a really exciting uh, viewpoint, and and one which you don't normally hear. Um, so there we were as students in this. Uh, in this, uh, it's only a tiny little university, but it was a real hothouse of, uh, 
of ideas and I, I, I came to get interested in ideas and then I started reading um, all of these people, uh, um, Hayek Friedman and, and all of the others um, and uh, I thought, yeah, this is, uh, this is, this is me, you know, I, I, I leave people alone and actually um, they produce um, quite a good world. <laughs> you know, I think of it as sort of the cradle of liberty in some ways, uh, you know, the, the Scottish Enlightenment and so forth uh, right, right there. Yes, a long tradition going back to Adam Smith, of course, who was a Scots uh, philosopher and an economist in the 18th century. So, uh, yes, that, that kind of Scottish, it, it's a no-nonsense uh, approach. It's, uh, uh, Scots are, are very direct and uh, uh, they always have been and they, they, they tell things like they are. Uh, and they, they don't uh, go into isms and uh, philosophies and things like that. They, um, they, they look at the real world and say, how can we improve it? And uh, mostly you can improve it just by leaving people alone and letting them get on with their lives. So that's a fascinating part of what I wanted to ask you about. I mean, obviously your involvement in the Adam Smith Institute, the involvement and in, in, uh, establishment of it. Um, and Adam Smith, uh, for, to my mind, I mean, a lot of people think of him as an economist. Uh, and and he was certainly a moral philosopher, uh, but he was he looked at the world like you said he, he he was looking at the world and just making observations about it versus having these model grand models that a lot of times economists do today. You know, it, it's interesting. My my program is called the Defenders of Capitalism Project. I can't think of a more appropriate uh, person to to be talking to in terms of a champion of laissez-faire. Um, but how, what what made you think about Okay, I'm, I'm going to establish, you know, an institute in this guy's name. Well, um, it was an accident mostly. Um, in the 1970s, when I graduated from university, um, the um, economy of the United Kingdom was going. My homeland was was going down very fast. And the unions were controlling everything. We had a Labour administration, and even the Conservative administrations were not really very different. Um, so uh, the economy was plummeting and everybody would say that, oh, um, Britain is going to end up nearer to what was then Eastern Europe uh, than to Western Europe. You know, we, we were heading down that road. And like many other um, young people at the time, I joined what was called the brain drain. <laughs> In other words, young people, they looked at... Uh, uh, the way the economy was going. They looked at the taxes that they might be paying if they <laughs> ever managed to get a job. And they thought, uh, nuts, you know, we're going somewhere else. So colleagues and I, well, my brother and my colleague Madison Piri, um, both uh, all, all, all went to America one by one. Uh, and we did various things. I worked on Capitol Hill um, uh, for a little while, uh, which was very instructive. It, it told me how um, the legal system works, the, the legislative system works. How the sausage is made, so to speak. Oh, yes, that's right. Don't go there. I mean, it's, <laughs> it, it, well, it was, it, that, that was a remarkable education. I mean, for example, um, I had to read all of the regulations that were published. And uh, I think at the end of the year, I'd read 147,000 pages of regulation. I mean, it was just ridiculous. And the other um, educational uh, thing was that... Um, uh, I, I, I looked through the farm bill and I said, this farm bill is very strange because you've got you know, lots of farm stuff at the front and then at the back you've got um, food stamps, which is a, a welfare policy. It's got nothing to do with the farm <laughs> bill. 
And they said, oh, Eamon, you just don't understand, do you, right? <laughs> all of the Republicans vote for the agricultural subsidies and all the Democrats vote for the uh, food stamps. So everybody's happy. I said, yes, except the American taxpayer. <laughs> that's right, that's right. So, so that was an education. And then I, I talked for a year. But uh, at the same time, we, I think we all felt that, well, the United Kingdom is our country. And we'd seen interesting ideas in America like... Uh, you had competition in telephones, which you know my uh, economics professor told me was theoretically impossible. <laughs> so, but there it was, and thought, well, can't we come? Can't we? And, and, and equally, we saw the American Senator Kennedy, for example, talking about things like we should have a national health service, which we knew was an absolute disaster in the UK. So we thought um, we should really come back home, and we should set up somebody to swap ideas across the Atlantic. And we did that, indeed, um, for a while. And then, of course, in 1979, Mrs. Thatcher was elected in the UK, and we had a bit of a, an open goal for um, uh, these free market, uh, pro-freedom ideas in the UK. Uh, and so most of our work has been in the UK. But it does, of course, have an international resonance because um, things like privatization, which Mrs. Thatcher uh, led, and we were on the intellectual leading edge of that, um, these things have gone around the world. So uh, it's, it's not solely a, a UK thing. No, absolutely. And in one sense, you've had a big, you personally have had, and the, the Institute has a big impact on the world. I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, been recognized as a very effective think tank. Um, and I want to ask you a lot about your involvement, uh, that open goal thing with, with Thatcher and so forth, the, the openness to the ideas of liberalism and freedom. Uh, but I wanted to ask you a, a quick question about Adam Smith and the Institute uh, and his reputation in the UK. I made uh, a pilgrimage of sorts to uh, Scotland. Uh, I was traveling as a tourist, but I went there to see... Uh, to see his the statue that you guys put up, mm -hmm. uh, and and I heard an interesting story. I wanted to ask you if it was true. I, I was told that for a long time there were all over the UK and all over Europe there were homages to Karl Marx and so forth, and and no one could really find anyone any any real monument or anything to Adam Smith. And there was a, a Canadian oil guy who got upset about that, and he was partly the one who helped. Helped you guys fund this uh, this beautiful, wonderful statue that I have photos of myself with, of Adam Smith and uh, in Edinburgh. Yes, that's pretty well true, actually. Um, Karl Marx had this uh, enormous, uh, great uh, bust about uh, eight feet high in uh, Highgate Cemetery in in London, uh, which curiously is a private cemetery. Uh, and uh, uh, Adam, Adam Smith had a, a tomb uh, in uh, a public cemetery in uh, in Edinburgh, um, and there was um, there were weeds and plants growing out of the top of it and all the rest of it. You see, so um, and I I phoned up the local council and I said um, I, I we'd like to give some money to tidy up Adam Smith's tomb because it's just it's covered in weeds and there's a uh, a big uh, shrub growing out of the top is just going to break the thing up, and they said, "Well, yes, all right, you you can you can do that." And I said, "Well, can can we you know can we clean it as well?" And they said, "This was the the sort of protector, the person who protects the the monuments and so on." So, well, that would be unwise because cleaning it would 
probably do more harm than, than good. It, it, it's it's a, an 18th century tomb. It should be allowed to age with dignity. Uh, well, all right. But then she said, um, but if you wanted to do something like um, put up a statue, then I would very much support that. And I thought, what a good idea. <laughs> it wasn't my idea, it was them. And so we were very fortunate that uh, uh, at that time, they were pedestrianising the street outside the uh, city hall, um, right in the in the middle of the the ancient city and the, the big you know, the tourist centre, going from the Holyrood Palace up to the the castle on the hill, uh, where everybody goes. And they were pedestrianising that bit of the street, and I said, "Can we put it there?" And they said, "Yes, why not?" Perfect <laughs> so, spot. <laughs> so there you go. So, um, but uh, yes, Mr. Lamont, uh, who who you mentioned, uh, was originally Scots and then uh, okay. um, was in business in in Canada, and uh, he also uh, helped uh, clean up the the, the tomb and, uh, and and so on. Yeah, I think he gave us a little bit of money to the statue. That's right. But certainly, yeah. lots of other people. Yeah, that's a wonderful story. That, that yeah. uh, you, and it's and it's a beautiful statue. It's a beautiful site and a good spot for him. Um, so tell us more, I mean, both of us being members of the Montpellier Society, we understand the importance of Adam Smith, but talk a little bit about Adam Smith historically. I've heard you speak about him before, just in terms of the, the wealth of nations and, and what an incredible thinker he was, what an innovative thinker, observing reality, observing you know, the, the whole way that nations thought about wealth, the way people thought about the creation of uh, prosperity. But talk a little bit about Adam Smith for a moment. Well, um, he was he was born in uh, 1723 uh, in the east coast of Scotland. So uh, next year is his 300th year anniversary, um, and he was very gifted. He he read a lot and uh, went to uh, university uh, very very young, um, and um, I, I I would say that people think of him as as an economist. Uh, his first book was in moral philosophy. The one that made him famous uh, in 1759 was uh, the um, theory of moral sentiments. Um, and that was a completely new way of think thinking about uh, morality. And, and so it made him extremely famous. Um, and then the stepfather of a, a nobleman, a, a young nobleman, he was only 12, the Duke of Buccleuch, hired Adam Smith as tutor to the Duke of Buccleuch. And uh, like uh, all young uh, aristocrats, uh, Smith took him on the, um, the grand tour of Europe. And while he and Smith were in uh, Europe, um, of course, Smith got exposed to lots of interesting ideas and um, uh, met the economists uh, over, over there. Um, and uh, he started thinking, uh, I, you know, I should write all these things down and write them, write them in a book. And, and that eventually, 15 years later, became, became the wealth of nations. It took him a long time. Um, but firstly, I would say that I don't, think, I don't think you should think of Smith as being an economist. I don't think you should think of Smith as being um, a moral philosopher. I think you should think of him as being a social psychologist. He also wrote about the arts. He, he wrote about um, the use of language, um, and he wrote about politics. So in other words, you know, he wrote about the different parts of the human psyche. One part of that was ethics, one part of that is uh, economics, and, and, and then these other parts as well. 
so the, so he really had a, a sort of comprehensive view over the the human mind and again uh, you know pe people say oh he's a terribly original thinker mm. well yes but at the same time i think what he was really good at is collecting lots and lots and lots of facts and then systematizing it and and uh, using that to, to see the patterns if you like and he was he was good at detecting patterns in things and so you read the wealth of nations and quite frankly i don't know why you should but I, I mean, <laughs> what you should do is read my read my condensation art, <laughs> which i have <laughs> yes the condensed wealth of nations it'll save you a lot of a lot of trouble um and it's absolutely packed full of facts and of course each of these facts he uses to illustrate general principles so see so from the fact he draws out how the economy actually works. Now you use the term social psychologist. Would you say social scientist in a sense as well because he's so fact-oriented, so reality-oriented? Um, yes, I'm not, I'm not sure I agree with the term of social science anyway. <laughs> I think um, most of it is, is social sorcery. <laughs> social <laughs> everything else. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I don't think that social science is, is anything like physical sciences. It's not something you can put numbers on and it's not something that you can run experiments on you know you, know, you can't um, you, you, you can't run a, run a, a social experiment uh, you, you'd have to um, be draconian with people and stop them doing things in order to test theories well I, that's not going to happen you, you can't do that and you mean on an individual basis but you, you don't you wouldn't you agree we have had like this grand social science experiment with you know, central planning versus freedom. You know, the, the, yes, there, there's been. Yes, there's been. <laughs> it's pretty obvious to me that it hasn't worked. Yes, that's absolutely right. All those uh, many many apologists uh, say, well, you know, there's there's reasons why this is, hasn't quite gone well, and then they say, of course, we need more of it in order to make sure that it really works. Right, you know, right. it's because we haven't had enough socialism is the problem. You see, um, so that's 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 how it always is, and. Uh, um, you know that's been true in the Soviet Union. It's been true true in China that uh, 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 socialist uh, authority comes in. Uh, it's an absolute disaster, and then they say, "Well, well, that's because this this is not real socialism. We haven't got to full socialism yet. You know, we need more and more and more." So, so you end up just making things worse and worse and worse and worse. So, so I mean that that, that is Smith. He was a, a you know a great um, humanitarian and uh, yeah, an analyst of the human mind. I think is what he was. Mm -hmm. So what I'm curious, what uh, what's your favorite thing that you've written about, either in regards to Smith or some of the other thinkers that you've written? Oh golly. Uh, well, I I do have a soft spot for Friedrich Hayek because, um, uh, well, I, I, I knew him because I went to early Montpellier meetings uh, when I was quite young. Um, so I, I got to, to meet him and, and talk, to things, talk to him about things. And I think that his idea of the spontaneous order, that you can have a perfectly functioning society, an animal society or a human society, um, uh, that grows and develops, um, but uh, it doesn't require anybody at the top to give orders. And um, a few years ago, I, uh, a woman called Linda Whetstone, who used to be um, uh, head of the, the Montpellier Society, um, she got me to write a book uh, about the um, 
the principles of a free society, which has been translated all, all around the world. It's, uh, it's, it's done very well. And uh, I, I, I did that. And it, I realized when writing it that there are many people in many other countries um, who think that um, in order to get, get to a good society, you have to have somebody in authority uh, telling you how to live it. And Hayek's view was, no, that's absolute nonsense. That's, that's, that is the way to make sure it's going to go wrong, right? Uh, that, um, think, think of things like, uh, says Hayek, think of things like language, right? We have language, we have rules of grammar. We communicate, language grows and evolves and new words come and go and all, and all the rest of it. It's a functioning, working system. But it's not as if there's anybody that has sat down and said, we're going to use this word for this. And <laughs> the language this. Uh, authority. And that's right. Oh, yes. Well, they, they, well actually, they we do have that now. They have that in France. <laughs> yeah, well. But, but it, you know, it's not as if anybody has, has mapped out the rules of grammar. In fact, the rules of grammar are very hard to understand. And there's something that we just, uh, we know when we've got it right. Uh, but it's very hard to, to write it down. So, so that was Hayek's view of the, the free system. And, and that, I think, is a, a hugely powerful idea. And I just so how different So how different uh, is Hayek's spontaneous order from uh, Adam Smith's invisible hand? Oh, not, about- a, not, a, not at all. Not at all. It's exactly the same idea. You know, Smith said that uh, um, you just do stuff. And strangely, uh, the whole world benefits. So... Um, you, um, if you're a baker, you produce bread um, and you sell it, you're not really, in, all you're interested in is getting money for it, right? So you can feed your own family. That's your motivation. And we all do that. But that means that we all have bread. <laughs> so, uh, and other professions produce other things. And so we've got a multiplicity of all of these different goods and services. Um, so uh, that, that idea just it does indeed go right back to Adam Smith. It probably goes back earlier, but Hayek certainly traced that idea back to Smith and uh, John Locke uh, uh, and others who, um, who who realize that if you just get out of people's way, then um, you get a, a society that grows and, and functions and progresses much faster than anything that, that, that we could plan or design centrally. That's why the Soviet Union uh, Mao's China didn't work because you just can't process the information. No one has that kind of knowledge. Exactly. That, that central knowledge. Yeah. I, I, the, the, the one phrase I use the most uh, when I'm teaching the, you know, the, how to defend or champion capitalism is that, that, uh, that phrase from, from Smith that you know, it's not from the benevolence or beneficence of the, the brewer, the baker, the, the uh, <coughs> The butcher, the baker, the, the brewer, yeah. you know, the, your supper, it turns out, um, they're doing it for, for a profit motive. Is that, do you connect the invisible hand or the spontaneous order to you know, the Ayn Rand's idea of selfishness, self-interest that way? Ooh, that's a difficult question. Uh, well, I think, yes, I mean, she regarded herself as a radical for capitalism and, and was very anti-interventionist. Uh, and very pro laissez-faire. I suppose that that is the, the logical uh, extreme of it. I, th- I think many liberals would say, well, I should know you, you need a, a bigger state than that. Although, although Rand herself uh, did, be- you know, she wasn't a libertarian. Not at all. No, 
Now, she did believe that, the, that there was a role for the state in terms of uh, justice and, and, and things like that. So, so she wasn't very different in, in that way. Um, but I, 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 yes, you know, she, she looked at uh, business, you know, if you read Atlas Shrugged or the Fountainheads and so on, um, and, uh, and saw that as, that as the drive, independent business as being the driver, creativity as being the driver, absolutely right. Um, it, it, you know, again, that, that's something that sort of comes out, out in Hayek, that, that uh, you know, he's saying if you want progress, then people have got to be free to try something new. And the trouble with planned societies is that they hate people trying something new that there's a way of doing things and that's what's specified and the rules are laid down. And if you do something else, well, you know, you are not just eccentric, you're dangerous, so we'd better stop you. So this may be asking you to psychologize a little bit. Do you think that motivation on the part of people who are in favor of central planning in that way, it's, uh, is it a, a bad motivation? They want to just control over things? Are they fearful of the future? Uh, a bit of both. Um, like Hayek, I think that I try to attribute good motives to people. I think that it is, um, it's perfectly natural that people might think, um, well, society would work much better if it was properly organised. So why don't we properly organise it? And, you know, set up a proper government that's, that's got power to decide what we produce and how we produce it and, and all of these things. And uh, of course, the, the trouble with that is that, that you end up uh, with just one system. So is that the world keeps changing, you know, um, <laughs> new things come and go, new technologies come and go. And if you're trapped in producing uh, things in one systematic way, then you, you don't, you, you lose the benefit of, uh, uh, of innovation. Um, and when circumstances change, um, you can't respond to it. So it's much better. This is the way that evolution works, says Hayek, and he's, he's quite right. You, you have huge diversity, and then circumstances change. Which ones survive? The ones that are best equipped to deal with that changing situation. Um, so you want diversity in the economy, you want diversity in society, because when things do change, and things change all the time, uh, at least there'll be some people who can take advantage of it uh, and develop new products and new processes that, are, that actually benefit everybody. So I want to go back to that phrase you used, uh, and, and back to your experience uh, on politics, because that, and I want to ask you about politics then and today. It's interesting. I was watching Sky News last night with our, the new prime minister. I want, uh, but I want to go back to Thatcher and the influence. You, you use oh, the yeah. phrase. You use the phrase "open goal," which to me uh, is a wonderful phrase. I mean, I, I'm assuming what you meant by that is, you know, here we have uh, some thought leadership going on. Um, and now we have a politician who is open to these ideas and, and understands them. Um, and here we go. We can, we can, we can uh, influence her to and with wonderful results. But I'm curious about that whole experience. And, and obviously, I mean, it's interesting. I don't know if this is obvious. I, when I've traveled to, to London and, and the UK before, I'm amazed at how many people don't, who don't appreciate 
Margaret Thatcher and what she did for for that country. But to me, it's an, an enormous impact she had. She's tons better than Reagan, and I'm a fan of Reagan. <laughs> but but you had some involvement in in you know uh, scoring some points in that goal, and I'm curious about that experience. Yes, uh, I think what I meant was that uh, for the first time in many years, we suddenly had um, in 1979 a government which was uh, interested in ideas. And um, uh, Mrs. Thatcher had met uh, Hayek and had met Friedman uh, and other intellectuals like that. And, and she'd read the stuff. I mean, this is most unusual in a politician. You know, she actually read yeah. I don't know how much of it she understood, you know, she, but, uh, but she recognized uh, the, the power and importance of the ideas that, that she was reading. And, uh, and, and so she was much influenced by that, or at least I think probably her, her natural instincts were reinforced by it, that she was the, the son of a, a local shopkeeper in uh, uh, the north of England, really, um, and uh, was raised in, in the values that you would expect of that. Uh, that the books had to balance uh, and that you had to be honest with your customers, otherwise they wouldn't come back again. Uh, and that uh, um, other people were free to com compete with you and, and so on, and that, that you, you shouldn't uh, try to um, use uh, the local council to keep out competition and things like that. So all of these values, ordinary you know, middle class, working class values, I think were in her, her heart already. And then, of course, she was exposed to all these people who had been come up through the Montparnasse Society, indeed. Um, uh, and uh, they gave a sort of intellectual backing as to why that actually works. And I think it was very exciting. So you had a prime minister who wasn't a managerialist like most of them had been, uh, 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 somebody who actually wanted to create a free society and a free economy, uh, realized, of course, that there were lots of political constraints uh, doing that and lots of people didn't understand why you should do that and didn't understand how it might work. Uh, so all sorts of forces to be overcome and a big, big state to, to unravel. Um, and she was um, looking for ideas. So, uh, it, you know, it used to be that um, uh, party policy in, in, in the UK was... Uh, uh, decided in smoke-filled rooms by um, normally men in grey suits <laughs> who were in party insiders. But Mrs. Thatcher, if you like, took her her shopping trolley uh, through through the streets to to various think tanks like ourselves and and picked up ideas that she liked and, and didn't pick up ideas she didn't like. So so it was a much more open policy-making process, and lots more people got involved in in policy and, uh, um, and, and so, you know, we got involved in contracting out local services and we got like, you know, refuse collection and things like that and we, we got involved in uh, privatisation of industry uh, because uh, when Mrs Thatcher uh, took office something like a third of the workforce uh, were, were government employees. They, they worked in nationalised industries, um, healthcare obviously, but uh, but also steel making, shipbuilding, uh, bus services, uh, um, gas, water, electricity, all of these things were nationalized industry. Housing, a third of the housing stock was nationalized. 
Um, so she wanted to reverse all that and set the people free. And uh, that's exactly what she did, and we helped her. So I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, my understanding is that the, 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 the people actually uh, gained shares. Once the privatization happened in certain companies, certain privatized companies, there were actually shares distributed to, to average citizens. Is that true? Yes. The, um, there had always been a, a sort of debate in the UK about nationalization or denationalization, it was called. So uh, things like steel, for example, was nationalized. And then an earlier government denationalized it. In other words, they gave it back to its old, old owners. Um, and we thought, right, it, th there are limits to that policy because um, who gains from it? A few people who, you know, suddenly get a... a well, you can see it. I mean, the extreme example is the Soviet Union, right? You, you had this... I mean, it wasn't... Not, not a good comparison, but you have this sort of, quote, privatization. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then who, who ends up? Who oh, same as the old boss. Yeah, the, the president's friends. Get it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, you know, that was true in so many countries, unfortunately. Um, but um, but that, yeah, that came after, really, the, the, the British experiment. The, right. the British one was, was really the first one. And we realized that... Um, uh, this process of getting uh, uh, businesses out of the state was a political process. It wasn't just an economic process. I mean, I, I remember Milton Friedman um, uh, coming to, to the UK and talking about, um, I, I, I think it was the, the uh, denationalization of, of, uh, of the steel company. I said, well, it's quite simple, he said, you, and it's this sort of New York draw. Uh, it's quite simple. You just send shares to every member of the public, you see, and then, you know, the government doesn't own it anymore. I thought, well, yes, but you see, the problem is that people don't know what a share is, right? You know, certainly at that, that point, out of a population of uh, 60 million, there were only a third of a million people who owned shares, and most of them probably owned it through trusts and things. They didn't even know what, what it was. So the first thing we had to do is to educate people uh, about what a, what a share was. But what we wanted to do is to say, this isn't just a case of taking an industry and giving it to a few people. This is a case of taking an industry which is supposed to be owned by the public, but where the public doesn't actually have any control of it. It's only the politicians that have control over it. You nominally own it, but you can't sell sell your bit of it, can you? Right? Or you can't, you know, I can't give it to somebody. Um, it's the politicians who control it. So let's give it back to the people. And so, uh, with the big industries like uh, telecom, uh, telephones were, were the first. Let's sell people shares, not give them shares, because they they've got to value those. But so you have to had to start with a huge educational campaign about how stock markets work and and then why you should want to own a bit of this. What ownership means. Yeah. yeah. And and there were all sorts of, and, and we also had to take account of all of the political interests. You know, for example, um, during the uh, tele telephone denationalization privatization, uh, the the unions who worked in it um, said, oh we're, we're we're opposed to this. They were opposed to it ideologically. Um, so yeah, we're, go we're going to stop it. 
and we thought, right, what can we do about that? Well, I'll tell you what, why don't we give free shares to everybody who works for the telephone company? And so the uh, union leader said, oh, we're opposed to privatization. And the uh, workers in the industry said, oh, we're getting some free shares. That's pretty good. <laughs> Maybe we're for this after all. <laughs> That's right. So that bought up that, that opposition. And in every industry, there were different sets of people. You know, there were the public who used the service, there were the civil servants who administered it, and then there were the trade unions and, and politicians who might have a, an interest and so on. So different, different interest groups with different strengths. And you could either take them with you or you could go around them or if they were weak, you could just go straight through them. So each industry required a different solution, actually. Um, so it was a pretty tricky process. That whole idea is tricky, especially today with central planning being sort of much more in vogue. Uh, I mean, are, are there people who are doing really good work? I mean, this is kind of changing the subject, but are there people who are doing really good work in your mind of how to educate people that way, how to how to show step by step, okay, we have this, you know, uh, centralize whatever it is the national health you know whatever it is here's how we have to go from here to where we really need to go are there people who are doing great work in that, in that field? well there are but I, I, I always say that um, an ounce of practice is worth a pound of theory uh, that if you can actually demonstrate that something works somewhere else in the world um, then politicians look at that and they think ah right this isn't just you know some some nutty professor this is you know it can actually function i mean when we started um the i think it was the uh yeah bob Poole of the reason foundation um wrote a book called cutting back city hall and what he did was simply document lots of instances around the planet mostly in america but around the planet of services that had been uh, in local government control and that were shifted to the private sector and how beneficial that was and how uh, costs fell and, and all the rest of it. And so we did a sort of pricey of this and, and did a little pamphlet uh, uh, taking a lot of these examples and saying, well, this is what we should do in, in Britain, take that example and this is what we could do. Um, and Mrs. Thatcher um, uh, probably uh, broke every copyright rule by uh, printing 20,000 of them and sending them to every local conservative councillor in the land. So, so uh, practice is, is extremely important. And I think that there are in all sorts of countries, you know, you can go to Lebanon and all sorts of, of places where uh, there are activists there who understand this and who uh, use the experience of other countries to say, we can package a policy that's that respects our own history and traditions and, 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 and the political makeup in our own country. Uh, so it's, it's not the same as what they do in America or Britain or France or wherever, uh, but it gets us on, 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 the, on the road to uh, a better, more open society. So there's, there's actually a lot of young activists doing that. And uh, there, there, there are some here at this me meeting, the Montpellier Society. There's the Atlas Foundation, which is a, an umbrella organization of think tanks all over the world. And then they meet together and they swap these ideas. And, uh, and that's how you make progress, I think. What do you think uh, uh, Margaret Thatcher's biggest victories were? And conversely, what are, what are the things that you thought, well, uh, 
she, there were some failures there. I think probably the biggest thing was to um, get rid of the state-owned housing. As I say, a third of the housing was owned by local authorities. And um, what we did there was we sold it, uh, sold the houses to their tenants um, very cheaply. Um, so the tenants had a, a huge interest to, to take this property because they knew that uh, they were getting something of some value uh, for less than its market price. Okay, now that's not a, not a, if you like, a perfect flea market theory, right? Well, but it's a step idea. forward. But it's a step forward. And what it did was, um, it, it created a property-owning democracy. That these were people who lived in their houses, they didn't have any say over them, uh, the, the, the windows were, were rotten and you know, they were never painted and all, and all the rest of it. It wasn't their property, they didn't look after it, they, they got no reason to look after it. Um, and the local authorities certainly didn't look after it, they got other priorities. So you had a, a, a decaying housing stock owned by the, the, the local government. And um, uh, when people, when it became, a house became somebody's property, then they started looking after it. So the first thing they did is put in double glazing and, and a new door <laughs> and made the place uh, you know, weatherproof, <laughs> waterproof. Uh, and then they realized, I've got an asset here. I, you know, I've always wanted to start a small business, but I need some money. I could go to the bank and I could say, well, you know, I've got, I've got this house, you know, lend me a thousand pounds. I've got a house that's worth far more than that. So, so that, it actually led to the creation of a lot of new businesses. So that, I think that was a really, you know, we never anticipated all of that, uh-huh. but it, it, it was a really amazing achievement. So conversely, what would you say uh, were some of the things that, that didn't get done or learned at that time? We didn't really make a big inroad into the National Health Service. Mrs. Thatcher, people think of her as this you know, great gung-ho free market. She was actually very cautious. She was very cautious politically. And uh, she, uh, she did the easy things first. You know, she, she did the telephone company and the state trucking company and a few things like that and privatized those. And it was really only when uh, the opposition Labour Party uh, started saying, well, uh, you know, you can't do anything about the, the, the National Health Service, that's, you know, that, that's sacrosanct and so on and so on. It was only then, really, and, and, and also saying how bad it is under, under Mrs. Thatcher's reign. And, well, she knew it was bad, of course, yes, because it was a, it was a state industry, and <laughs> state industries are not generally good. State monopoly, almost. Um, and so uh, it was only when they started making a big fuss about health and how bad health had become that she started thinking about it. And, and her solution there was um, a so-called internal market, which, which we might think Tank the Health Institute had quite a lot to, to do with, the same, same in education, which is you separate the, uh, the finance from the provision, right? So the government still pays for medical care, but it can be provided by anybody. Uh, so you didn't have to go to a state hospital. You didn't have to go to a state doctor. Uh, you could go anywhere you like and the government would pay what it would have paid anyway. Um, and the same principle in education, which is a bit like the sort of charter school idea, right. uh, where the school is independent, but uh, 
uh, the, the government pays a certain amount. Um, uh, so she, it was really only at the end of her uh, administration that she started to introduce these these reforms. And of course, it, it didn't really get time to, to bed in. And then Tony Blair came in from the Labour Party. Um, and uh, although he was a moderate, um, he had to pay off debts to the left, who'd, who'd, who'd let him take office and just, you know, thinking that, oh, well, we'll let this, this moderate guy seems very popular, we'll let him in, uh, and, then, uh, and then we'll really take over. So he had to give them some uh, ministries and so on. So you had two left-wingers, one, one in charge of education, one in charge of health, who, who rolled back these reforms. Um, and it was only later that, that uh, Blair realised that was a mistake and, and started doing them again. So that didn't really work, which is a pity. We, we were nearly there and uh, you know, we had a, a system that would have opened up healthcare to much more competition um, and uh, we didn't really make it, unfortunately. And now we've got um, an, a, a state industry, health, uh, National Health Service, that, that employs a million and a half people, is the biggest employer almost in the world, not quite. Uh, and, it, and, it, and it's a top-down, bureaucratic, Stalinist structure. Uh, <laughs> so you, you've been so generous with your time, uh, but I want to jump ahead and, and talk about uh, the new prime minister, uh, Liz Trust. Um, tell me, I mean, she, there have been comparisons to Margaret Thatcher. There have been, uh, she's made sounds, uh, but it sounds like she's already, already uh Losing political capital, as it were. Already. Yeah. Tell, tell me your impre- your impression of her, uh, whether she has a good understanding or at least listens to some of the ideas that are that are pro freedom, pro individual flourishing. Talk about uh, the the most recent. Yes, I, I think she is very Thatcherite in in all of that. In fact, I think she's sort of, if you like, more liberal in the European sense than Mrs. Thatcher was. Mrs. Thatcher was socially quite conservative, and I think. Uh, Liz Truss uh, uh, basically thinks, well, you know, there are some rules, but at the same time, um, you know, people should be free to live their own lives the way that they want to live it. Um, so uh, she's more open like that, and uh, she is very free market, and she believes in low taxes. Uh, she believes that uh, taxes have uh, strangled uh, growth in, in the United Kingdom and, and many other countries as well, of course. Um, so... Uh, and, and that we should use the opportunities of Brexit in order to reduce regulation because the, the uh, you know, never mind my 147,000 pages of US regulation, you should see. <laughs> go to Brussels. Out, yeah, go there. It's horrific. Um, so we have the opportunity to, to roll back all of that stuff. We have the opportunity to restore ourselves as a trading nation because. Uh, um, the European Union, of which we used to be a part until 2016, um, uh, has uh, has a tra- tariff wall around it. So, uh, uh, and that discriminated against many of our old Commonwealth uh, partners, like New Zealand and so on, which it found it, it couldn't sell um, us butter and lamb anymore because it was just they couldn't afford the tariffs. So uh, she th- she thinks that that there's huge opportunities there. The problem is her own party and her own party have been living in this fantasy land for so long where the Bank of England simply prints money 
and they keep interest rates at um, emergency levels, as they have done since the financial crisis in 2008. They're not alone, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and uh, so you've got quantitative easing and low interest rates. Uh, and, uh, you know, businesses are just, business. Are, you have zombie businesses who just exist because interest rates are low, and if, if they had, a, had to face real circumstances, then they, they would fall. You know, she realizes all of that has got to go, that you can't live on funny money all the time. You can't live on other people's money all the time. So she was very keen to reduce taxes. And uh, her councillor introduced a, 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 what's called a mini, mini budget. It was actually quite a major budget. And he says, we're, we're going to reduce corporation tax and we're going to reduce other taxes and we're going to reduce uh, uh, and, and, the, and the cap on bankers' bonuses, and we're going to reduce the top rate of income tax. And of course, everybody then said, oh, well, yeah, this is a budget for the rich, you know, this is not... And of course, the government's view was, I mean, take things like, like the, the cap on bankers' bonuses, right? We have a, a maximum on, on, on what bonuses a bank can pay its, its staff. Now, bonuses are actually a very rational way of paying people. You, you don't pay them very much as a basic salary. And when times are good, you pay them a lot. And when times are bad, you don't pay them very much. You mean when times are good, like they've been very productive and gotten lots of things oh, yes, done? Yeah, well, exactly. That's what I mean. <laughs> uh, and uh, so it's a rational way to do it. And when you cap it, all that happens is the jobs go to New York and they go to you know, other countries, they go to Singapore and they go to... Why would you want to do that? So uh, by removing that, the idea is that business comes back to the UK. By removing the top rate of tax, which is 45%, plus the social taxes that you pay on top of that, so I mean, you're actually paying 60% of your income, uh, that drives people away. Uh, and it makes people think, why should I carry on working if I'm going to pay 60% of my income to the government? Yeah, yeah forget it. I'm, just, you know, I'm either going to stop working, I'm going to employ a very expensive accountant, uh, or I'm going to just move myself to another country. <laughs> so, um, you know, by, by cutting those, those taxes, uh, the hope is, was, that you, we, can, we can rekindle growth. Taxes are the biggest barrier to people starting new businesses because uh, it increases the risk so much. Well, that seems like the thing that she, uh, as little as I've heard of her and heard from her, that she has the most animation personally about is, is growth, growth, yes. growth. Oh, yes, yes. That, is, yeah. that she understands that. Um, but you're saying her party is her. Yeah, well, it, I, I think she takes the, you know, Winston Churchill famously said that, you know, trying to tax yourself out of debt is like a man standing in a bucket and trying to lift himself up by the handle, right? So, <laughs> the, uh, no, uh, you, you, you don't uh, pay, you know, we have huge debt from COVID and uh, financial crash and various other things. Um, you can't pay that off by uh, simply raising taxes yet again. The only way you can do is, is to earn more money, basically. So uh, that's, the, that's the growth agenda. But of course, what happened is that even her own party, um, uh, some of that is a step too far. So she's had to backtrack on, on the 45% uh, tax rate and say, oh, well, we'll keep it for now, which is a really great shame. Uh, so you know, if if she had uh, talked more on the spending side, cutting spending, would that well, have been even worse? Uh, for no, her political, no, I think probably not, because I think it would indicate that, that they 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 plan to balance the books, and they do plan to balance balance the books. But you know, maybe they should have done it all, all at the same time. So it may have been 
really a political failure, perhaps. But, uh, you know, I think the budget was the right thing to do, but I think politically it didn't go down too, too well. That's, that's the only thing. But, but I mean, you know, things like top rate of tax being 45%, if you cut that back to 40, which was the plan, Firstly, you don't lose very much revenue, and probably you gain, gain a lot of revenue because lots of people will start working more and coming to the UK and <laughs> saying, well, we can earn decent amounts of money in the UK. So uh, I think it would have paid for itself in no time at all. So tell me, uh, are you hopeful about her administration, even though there's been this you know, kind of stumbling? And then wider, give me a wider lens to attend on in terms of how hopeful you are about the the prospects of a world that understands the ideas that we talk about here at the Montpellier Society? Well, as for Mrs. Truss, she's only got two and a half years to, uh, to show uh, 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 some achievements. And I think probably, yes, you could, you, I think things will be better in two and a half years and therefore that works in her favor. Uh, the tax cuts and so on will have some effect. It normally takes two and a bit years for it to show. And I think it'll be starting to, to show then and, and we'll be starting to, uh, to pay down our debt and things like that. Um, as for the world, um, I remain an, an optimist. I mean, yes, COVID has been very destructive in terms of uh, raising trade barriers between people. And I think that globalization, you know, all, all that the left uh, uh, derided, um, has been something which has taken huge amounts of people out of dollar a day poverty. And that's the real measure, you know, I mean, you know, forget Britain and, and the United States, these are rich countries, they can look after themselves. And now we, you know, we complain about oh, incomes, you know, being under pressure and inflation and all of that kind of stuff. The real thing that a liberal in the European sense should worry about is people living in abject poverty with, with no capital to back them up, with, with, uh, with, with, with no prospects. And that is starting to change. And I think we're going to see a huge change there. I mean, remember that most of uh, um, sub Sub-Saharan Africa, the, the, the average age is about, is about well, it's, 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 un, it's under 40. It's more like, it's more like 30 or, or 20 something. And young people tend not to have capital, right? Because they, you know, they haven't learned skills of work and all, and all the rest of it. Now they're becoming, more, uh, they're, getting, they're, get, they're starting to get more capital, so they're getting more efficient. Uh, there are more middle class people are, around in these places. Places like uh, you know, Africa and the Middle East, I, I think it's just, just going to boom, actually, uh, in all the right ways. And that's going to, to help wipe out, uh, and India as well, for example. I mean, that's, that's going to wipe out abject dollar a day poverty. And that's the reason why I'm in this business. It's the same reason that Adam Smith was in this business. You know, he, you know, he didn't care about the poor, in fact, the rich rather. He, 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 um, he, he wrote about you know, how, how bad the rich were at so many things and they, they spent lots of money on, on silver buckles instead of doing anything useful um, and lived off land that they'd inherited and so on and so on. What he was really interested in is getting out of the way of ordinary working people and letting them do their own thing without the government regulating and taxing them all the time. And that's uh, uh, exactly the reason why 
I believe in that agenda as well. You and me both. I, I, I could talk to you for hours. I really appreciate your time. Even, uh, Dr. Eamon Butler has been our guest on the Defenders of Capitalism program. And, and again, I really appreciate it and hope to talk to you soon. Yes, you're welcome. Thank you so much.